Keep LifeSite reporting the truth about life, family, and the faith, even during these unprecedented times. Become a monthly donor, and your gift will be doubled for a whole year, up to $120,000. Join today to double your gift and double your impact. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, we're going to be talking to best-selling Canadian author William Gardner on where he thinks Canada is going, how Canada got here, and what young Christians and young conservatives should do about an increasingly bleak future. That's coming right up. Stay with us. Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, we're going to be talking to William Gardner, a best-selling author and a longtime Canadian analyst. He's written several best-selling books, including The Trouble with Canada and The Trouble with Canada Still. He's written more recent analyses on what's going on in this country, including books called The Great Divide. He's had a fascinating career as a businessman. He was actually an Olympian as well. He uh, he did the decathlon for Canada. And he's he's an absolutely fascinating author and commentator. He has no fear is 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 completely willing to defend Christian and conservative values uh, in mainstream media whenever he gets the chance. And I was really looking forward to having this conversation with him about the situation here in Canada, where we are at at the moment, and what we can do about this going further. So uh, without any further introduction from me, here is my conversation with Canadian author, commentator, and I would say political philosopher, William Gardner. All right, just to start off. You are the author of a book called The Trouble with Canada, which had a much-needed sequel. Perhaps you could start off by just by uh, giving our listeners, our viewers, a rundown of how Canada got to the place that it did. Just to give one little piece of context here, uh, two months ago, a statistic that really did actually shock me came out. It's, it indicated that only 11% of Canadians attend religious services of any kind. So this isn't just Catholic services, Protestant services, uh, this includes mosques, synagogues, gurdwars, any religious service at all. That means 88% of Canadians do not attend a weekly religious service of any kind. Okay, where to start? Uh, I'm going to try to make this simple and short. <laughs> when I got involved in uh, thinking about politics, well, it was in the 1980s, and um, I was getting very agitated about what our Prime Minister, Pierre Trudeau, the father of our current prime minister, was doing to our country. What was he doing to our country? Well, our country was rooted in a um, British-style constitutional framework, which gave all the provinces um, their um, constitutional obligations and uh, duties, and the federal government its obligations and duties, and never the twain should meet. Uh, Pierre Trudeau didn't like um, really, he didn't like constitutional democracy. Um, he referred to our parliamentarians several times as a bunch of losers. And um, he really came from a more French tradition of code law uh, and was much more of a socialistic thinker in style than any of our previous prime ministers then or perhaps since. He wanted to convert Canada to a more socialistic type of um, 
confederation. Managed it through a form of fiscal bribery, saying all Canadians, for example, free medical care. Right. I put that in quotes because nothing is free in this right. life. <clears throat> what he meant, what he meant was prepaid through the tax system. But he offered everybody free medical care, <clears throat> and it's difficult because that's a responsibility of the provinces in our constitution, not of the federal government. So the way he socialized Canada with respect to free medical care which was a top-down, state-controlled kind of deal. You know, there were five uh, mandatory provisions of the plan that you had to abide by, and then the government would start subsidizing your province uh, in terms of medical care for all, free of charge, at least for everything that was listed in the program. Um, so the way he achieved that was uh, he set out the five principles of the Medicare system for all Canadians coast to coast, even though it wasn't the federal government's uh, right or responsibility to do that. And he got them all to sign on through fiscal bribery. What he basically said was, we'll pay half of your costs <clears throat> if you come on board with these five principles. And some of the provinces fought it, notably Alberta, <laughs> but they all caved in eventually because we're talking about billions of dollars. Right on offer, which Trudeau raised since by taxing everybody more and then spreading the wealth to every province to pay for his socialistic style program. That was just one of many things that happened at the time, which upset me. Other things were, uh, well, when um, Moroni came along, I got upset too, because he was promising a national daycare program. What was he thinking of? Well, the right to free daycare for all Canadians. It didn't matter if you had a mink stole around your neck and a tennis racket in your hand and lived in Rosedale, you were going to get free daycare for your children. It was going to cost billions and billions of dollars. So at the time, I, and this is how I kind of got involved in political thinking. Before that, I was mostly into the world of literature and philosophy and that, that sort of thing. I wrote a letter to uh, the Conservative Party of Canada to Mulroney, actually, and I said, <clears throat> "You're too pink. If you don't, if you don't get more blue, you won't see any more of my green, <laughs> meaning my money." So somehow that letter ended up on the Globe and Mail. I don't know how. Someone in his team saw it, I guess, and it ended up being printed in the Globe and Mail. And next thing I knew, I got a call from Colin Brown, who was the originator of the National Citizens Coalition, asking me for lunch. Right. So, you know, that, that's how I started to get involved. And I thought that the NCC at the time was a very funny organization. They took great pleasure in lampooning the government with these terrific cartoons. We don't see them much anymore, but that's what was going on. And that's how it started. So I, I said to my wife, someone's got to write a book about what's going on in this country. And she said, why don't you stop complaining about it and do it yourself? <laughs> well, at the time, I had five children. I still have five children. I have 15 grandchildren now. And I had two businesses, 200 employees. I was a very busy guy. So I was waking up with a bit of anxiety, 4 or 4.30 in the morning. She said, instead of trying to go back to sleep, just get a cup of tea, go down to your study, and start writing your book. Boy, that was great advice. So I started doing that. And, uh, you know, the long and short of it is I tried to do a kind of coast-to-coast -coast analysis of what has happened to our country, how Trudeau was trying to change it from a constitutionally-based free society where things like private property and free speech rights and the free enterprise and family were central to how we live into a much more socialistic type of government where the government is going to do it all for you. you know? Right. So, and, and, and I said to my wife, how can I do anything? How can anybody do anything until we know what the trouble with Canada is? 
So that became the title. Right. And that was the book. It wasn't supposed, according to the publisher that I ended up with, it wasn't supposed to sell more than a thousand copies. In fact, it sold about 60,000 over the next two or three years and became number one in Canada. So 20 years later, I decided to revise it. And I wrote a book called The Trouble with Canada Still. And if you have people interested watching this show, I think they're both good books, but the second one is more updated and a better book than the first one. And they better be sitting down if they decide to read it because it's going to really change their vision of their country. So from a historical perspective, because you've been writing about, uh, or you've been writing about this stuff longer than some of our viewers have been alive. One of the things I really wanted to get uh, from you was, was a historical overview because there's a lot of people now who look at Canada and they can't figure out how we got here. They can't figure out how the most extreme elements of the Justin Trudeau agenda are just building on an agenda that sort of rose up slowly and people didn't notice it. So just to, to return to my, my first example there, uh, you know, in post-World War II, about 67% of people in Canada attended Christian services weekly, right? Now we... In 2020, 88%, 89% of people attend no religious services weekly. Can you give us sort of a historical synopsis from your perspective, from your research of how we got from there to here? Yeah, I think I can. Uh, <clears throat> I don't want to go on too long here. And no, uh, feel free. These are, these are big questions and don't require soundbite yeah. answers. Well, the big overview of in recent times, I put in a book called The Great Divide. And in, I think it was chapter two of that book, I tried to explain um, how we got to where we are today. Where did we begin? Well, I call this the four stages of liberalism. The first stage of liberalism in the Western world, really, was what I call virtue liberalism. Are the settlers who came to Canada and to the New World from Europe trying to escape religious and political oppression over there, really came to North America to establish a kind of New Jerusalem, if you like. They were interested in freedom and liberty, but only, listen to this, only so that they could be good. That's why they wanted to so be free. So you're talking about Plymouth Rock here, or are you talking about the settlers in Quebec and all that as well? All, all North America. Okay. The early settlers who came here, they were interested in liberty, but not because they wanted to, say, be free to sexually or right. to be free uh, to do whatever they wanted, you know, period. They mostly wanted to be free so they could express their own conception of religious virtue in this case right. in, a free, in a free land without being persecuted. So that was stage one, what I call stage one. Stage two was uh, really began with the uh, enormous influence of philosophers like John Locke, Adam Smith, and so on. Their thinking was pretty much absorbed into the whole Western world through books like Adam Smith, Wealth, Wealth of Nations, John Locke's treatise, Two Treatises of Government. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can find those kind of um, a precy of those in the American Declaration of Independence. And you can also find all sorts of scraps of that thinking in Canada's Founding Debates, which is a book I recommend to any scholars who happen to be listening that I put together in the year 2000, which was a annotated uh, assembly of all of Canada's founding debates. Hmm. You can see the shadow of Locke walking all through that book, <clears throat> along with many other political philosophers whose thoughts were so um, well digested in a, on the street, so to speak, or by ordinary thinkers, uh, that their names are hardly mentioned in those texts. At any rate, that became the sort of um, uh, level, level uh, stage two of, of liberalism. It had to do with private property rights, individual rights, and all that sort of thing. And it lasted 
it, it served well for about 150 years in the North American continent. It was based on liberty. That was the foundation of it, uh, without the virtue stuff necessarily being part of it. It was economic liberty, private property liberty, individual rights liberty, and that kind of thing. Yeah. We still hear a lot, of, a lot of that today. But what happened was the, those liberals began to see after a while that <clears throat> this kind of stage two liberty was great, but it wasn't doing what they wanted. It wasn't creating the good society. Good heavens, there was an underclass developing. There were poor people all over the place. I mean, look at today, sleeping in the streets mm -hmm. in San Francisco and Los Angeles. We get lots of terrible views of that situation even today. Well, it was beginning then. And, it, and so they began to say to themselves, liberty is not enough. This was the axis and this was the changing point in the development of Western political thinking. Liberty is not enough as a foundation for the good society. We need equality too. So stage three was what I call equality liberalism. Soon these liberal thinkers, I'm using the sense of liberal in the original um, good sense of people who thought freedom was the best basis for a, a constitution. They began to see that it wasn't enough. We need equality too, because you can't be free unless you have equality. Right. Uh, one of the critics of Western freedom liberalism um, in fact, made a joke about this. He said, all men are free to sleep under park, park benches, right? And that was a taking aim at the rich and all that, right? And it was a, it was a cutting line mm -hmm. because it hurt. If you really thought that the best society would be a free society for all, equal opportunity and all that, you're thinking got overturned by that kind of comment. What do we do about these people who can't make it in a free society? Right. What about the people who don't have any bootstraps sort of thing? You got it for whatever reason, you know, either they're lazy, they're stupid, they're shiftless, they're hardworking, they have bad luck, they got hit by lightning, I mean, who knows, <clears throat> but they are there, we have to do something about it. So the foundation of Western liberalism began to shift from a foundation in liberty to a foundation in equality. <clears throat> However, that threw the entire Western world into a contradiction. Hegel would have called it a massive contradiction. What do you do if you're trying to pretend that your society is going to progress in two with two contradictory foundations, one in individual liberty and the other one in equality for all. And I don't mean equality of opportunity or equality before the law. They meant equality of outcome. Yeah, right. We got to make their lives better and we do it through government policy from the top. In other words, we're going to do it by force. Well, how can you have a, a state rooted in force for everybody and also in liberty for everybody? Well, this takes me to stage four of my little analysis here, mm -hmm. which is what I call libertarian socialism. It wasn't like there was a conductor up there saying, here's what we're going to do now. It kind of evolved naturally throughout the process of thinking it through. What we have decided to do with this massive contradiction, which would have ruined us in the end, I think, is we've decided to divide the body politic into two bodies, a personal physical body and a political body. What we're saying to people personally is you can have all the freedom you want all the drug use you want, the sex that you want, uh, we'll get rid of the definition of marriage, uh, you know, you can have homosexuality, you can have your marijuana, you can have your pornography, even in the nicest hotels. However, when it comes to whatever we think the state can provide uh, to everyone equally, right, we, we are going to be um, socialistic. So we did, we, we, we managed to come up with uh, solving the contradiction between these two foundations through something I call libertarian socialism. The people have never felt so free in these personal and physical ways, yet they've never been so surrounded by regulation as we are today. 
most of us don't even see it because it's just part of everything we do. Right. The first thing most Canadians say when they see or hear of a problem is, what's the government going to do about it? Mm -hmm. That's where our minds are. So that's my analysis of how we got to where we are today. So that makes a lot of sense from from a political perspective, and and, and it kind of explains, I, I think, the political philosophy that evolved along with the emergence of the sexual revolution. At what point in this analysis do you think people started to abandon religious faith of, of all types? Well, you've asked the religious question a few times now. I can see that it's uh, top of mind, and I mm -hmm. think it's an incredibly important one. My basic analysis of this is to say that human beings are religious by nature. Mm -hmm. uh, they all have a hunger for God. However, uh, well, where they got into trouble in terms of this hunger for God and established religion was uh, through what they call theodicy, reconciling the idea of God with the idea of justice, universal justice, which is what everybody wanted. That's why we ended up with libertarian socialism. People decided, well, God's not doing it, so we're going to have to do it. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to create a kingdom of heaven on earth, and we're going to do it with the social democracy or socialism mm -hmm. in the case of Europe. Uh, so that was the kind of solution. Now, there's a huge history to this. I've actually written about it in a large book I wrote in the year 2000 called The Trouble with Democracy. Uh, there are quite a few chapters in there dealing with the religious question and the foundation of religion in the West and what happened to it and the rise and the connection with Christianity of a form of theology called Gnosticism. Right. Uh, yeah. There's no use going into that now. It's too complicated. But fundamentally, once you secu secularize all this, you come down to the idea that, um, that um, you know, the promise of God has been broken. So we progressive human beings are going to have to create it here on earth, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean they're less religious. They've just kind of installed the religious instinct in their own social and programs instead of in the church. Mm -hmm. So the reason, the reason that the religious question is top of mind for me at the moment is just because looking at, you know, the, the political scene where the conservative party is, is sort of attempting to decide who they become next. Um, is the conservative party of Canada going to mean anything other than pride and pipelines? Uh, at the moment, it seems unlikely. We're seeing a lot of uh, of the same sort of virtue signaling, but it's interesting to me. There was there was a debate in the Conservative Party about we need to be a party of ideas. Clearly, what we were selling in the last election against Justin Trudeau didn't work, so we need to be the party of ideas. And that seems to have been the conclusion that came from that discussion: is that we need to have ideas, but they won't articulate what those ideas are because anything small C conservative is seen as as too dangerous. And when I read that data on uh, on religious belief, or I guess more specifically religious practice, there'd be a lot of people who would claim to hold to belief systems that they don't bother to engage with uh, on, on, with any kind of frequency, is the fact that the primary concerns for social conservatives, uh, even outside of issues like abortion, are the fundamental uh, things that the freedoms that we need to a uh, function in our own communities, right? Have our Christian schools, the, the freedom to meet and worship uh, freely and publicly. Uh, and then second of all, the freedom of conscience, which means that doctors can opt out of, of you know, assisting with, uh, with euthanasia, assisted suicide, don't have to dispense birth control or abortifacients if they don't want to, those sorts of things. And what struck me about the number of people who are actually engaging uh, with religious faith is one of the reasons that social conservatives are having such a difficulty getting traction when they're talking about things like freedom of conscience and religious liberty, which are sort of bedrock fundamentals of any Western democracy, is that nobody has any idea what we're talking about anymore. 
if you look at those statistics, right, in order for somebody to say, yes, we all have the freedom of conscience, they have to understand the word freedom. They have to understand the word conscience. And they have to believe that a disagreement over sexual ethics doesn't mean the person who disagrees with you is a hateful bigot. And so for me, like that data hasn't just pointed to the obvious need for things like evangelization. It's actually helped to explain to me why some of these concepts like freedom of conscience and conscience rights, we're having such a difficult time explaining them to people and getting traction because people just don't seem to understand what they even are anymore. What's your take on all of that? Well, you've, You've described a lot and said a lot. <laughs> I, I don't know where to begin except to say that, um, I mean, with reference to the Conservative Party and its search for it, um, I mean, I feel abandoned. I have no political party anymore in this country. There's aspects of a lot of these parties that I like, but I don't have a party which stands for the totality of my beliefs and feelings and thoughts about what's best for this country. Uh, I have a very dear history professor friend at York University who got a little, even, even he, even he got a little shocked one day when I wrote in trouble that Canada has become an evil country. What? <laughs> what are you saying? I said, well, I said, I think that all political necessarily create a kind of sacrificial class in order to sustain their ideology. And what the modern uh, social democracies have done is sacrificed unborn children to their ideology. The philosophy of absolute, total, individual freedom of the libertarian sort, which we have now conferred upon the person and the body of every Canadian and American, by <laughs> sustaining their so-called right. Of course, I go nuts when I hear people defending this. Mm -hmm. the word, word choice, because the first thing I tell them is, what does choice have to do with, you can choose anything, you can even choose evil, and suddenly, right. they, suddenly they stop on their tracks, and they go, gee, you know, never, never thought of that, I said, well, maybe you should think about what you're choosing, rather than just the fact that you are, so on, most Canadians today, I'm sad to say, are to um, take up that discussion, or that argument, uh, time and time again, I run into very intelligent people, maybe I should say otherwise intelligent people, who when they get frustrated by this kind of debate in which you're basically moving the pawns and the pieces on the debating chessboard, and they see themselves getting checkmated, and then they stop and they just turn the board over, so to speak. And what they say to you is, I don't care what you say. I'm not changing my mind. In other words, right. they, have, they have developed a kind of well, a fundamentalist attachment to their own will because, and their own will is, is advertised in the word to the public and everybody around them by the word choice. Now, so I wrote an article in the new criterion some years ago, which I think is a pretty good piece, excuse the immodesty called the triumph of the will over nature. And it's characteristic of our time that, that again and again, wherever we turn, if you look at the ideological uh, foundation of what people are arguing with these progressive ideals, especially with respect to their, themselves and their bodies and their sexual rights and all the rest of it, is they're arguing that their own will should triumph over nature, including over their own biology. Look at the mm -hmm. modern fuss about gender and choosing your own gender identity. What you're basically saying is my will has the right to command 
the nature of my biology, which to many of us is simply ridiculous and crazy, but it's part of the public discourse these days, and a lot of people are on, especially in the left-leaning media and the universities and so on, are on board with it. We even have laws now being floated in our own parliament, uh, basically threatening to take par uh, threatening parents with punishment and fines yeah. and jail time for trying to dictate to their even nine-year-old children that they, they can't just get out of bed one day and say, hey, dad, I want to be a girl. I think I'm a girl, right? As if parents have no rights over that kind of upsetting situation in their own family. That's how far, that's what I would call the deep ideological penetration of the, uh, of the will, the triumph of the will over nature in our society. So uh, to further expand on that, how would you characterize where we're at? You've said now that you don't feel like you have a party. And one of my primary concerns about the situation in Canada as well is just that it's not only that the liberals are pushing the things that you've just been describing. It's also that they have no meaningful opposition. So where does that leave us right now in 2020, in your view? I think it leaves us with what I have described in The Great Divide. It leaves us as with libertarian socialism. Almost all Canadians are happy with it. They think they're freer than they have ever been in terms of their personal appetites, sexual appetites, drug appetites, pornography appetites, entertainment appetites, you name it. Never been so free. And they are quite willing to put up with being completely surrounded by regulation on all sides, from the municipality to the province to the federal government. They're okay with that because the fact of the matter is, and it's distressing for most people to hear this judgment, the fact of the matter is most people are not that concerned about uh, real political and economic liberty. What they're concerned about is their appetite liberty, right? They're more concerned about security when it comes to those other things. Give me my right. pension. Give me my health care. Look after me, uh, uh, daddy state. You know, look after me. And that's the kind of combination that we have today. It's been going on in the Scandinavian countries, which are not doing that well, by the way, in many respects. But that philosophy has been dominant there for a very long time. It started in Sweden in the 30s and 40s. Sweden used to be an incredibly religious and uh, conservative type country. And it was changed, listen, from the top down by five or six people, primarily by Gunnar and, Alva, and his wife, Alva Myrdal. I think uh, Gunnar won the Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, these two people basically with a team, a very small team, they basically engineered the complete change in the political life of Sweden from a very traditional, one of the most traditional societies in Europe to one of the most leftist, um, socialistic uh, uh, countries you could imagine. People often say, well, there you go, you see. They don't care about things like the family. Well, on the contrary, Sweden loves the family and they love their children. The difference between them and us is they want the government to do it all. So there's a society where everybody has government, free government daycare, free government schools, free government housing for young university graduates, you know, uh, blah, 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 government seniors uh, operations. From bottom to top, it's a state-based society. So they're totally uh, surrounded by government in every aspect of life except these personal things I've been talking about. And that was the model that Canada used. When Trudeau was senior, was walking around with Pearson and the rest of his cronies like Béjean, Lalonde, the Gang of Five from Quebec, planning all this for Canada, a la Sweden, they basically called Sweden the, the middle way. 
we don't want greedy American capitalism in Canada. Oh, no. We're going to go metric and try to, you know, distinguish ourselves from those capitalists down there with all their imperial systems and all that kind of stuff. We're going to go metric. We're going to be more European socialistic. And we're going to go the middle way. No greedy capitalism and no communism. We want Swedish-style socialism in Canada. And that's where we are today. The only difference between us and the Swedes is the Swedes knew it. Canadians are not really aware of it yet. So what's what's your analysis of where where we go from here? You've been you've been analyzing this for decades through many different uh, premierships and prime ministers. Uh, if you were a young person in 2020 looking at Canada's future, what what would you tell them? Well, for their own good, I would say, insofar as we still have certain rights to private property, not like we used to. For example, in King City, where I have a sizable property. You can't cut a tree here on your own property without getting permission from the municipality. When I tried to put a, a driveway into a property that I wanted to buy years ago, I never bought it for this reason, but uh, because of the government, I went to the government and I said, the driveway is a mess. It's a shared driveway with this neighbor. I'd like to you know, close it up, and so would he, and I want to create a new driveway. Am I allowed to do that? Get it? Allowed on my own property. And the answer was, well, we'll see about that but not until July. And this was like uh, April or whatever, when I was at the, the municipality. What's, what's it got to do with July? He said, the birds are nesting. I said, I can't put a driveway in because the birds are nesting? Yeah. He said, we're not gonna allow you to do that. And I said, what about the snakes and the cockroaches and the frogs, you know? He didn't laugh. He said, basically, <laughs> you just wait, right? Like, we'll get to that, too. So, you know, wrap, wrap, wrap around control is what we're after. And I don't want to bore your listeners with these stories, but I used to have a farm. And, I, and there were a couple of swans that a neighbor gave us. A neighbor was moving to the city. They had two beautiful swans. They're called mute swans with clipped wings. They couldn't fly. And we had a pond. Will you take our swans? So I said, sure. So, you know, it's a lot. you got to feed them. you gotta get you got to get the feed out. you got to put them in the barn in the winter and heat the stall a little bit, put in, make sure the water doesn't freeze. I mean, the whole thing, you know. And so we said, we'll look after them. Beautiful swans and all that kind of thing. One day, this, get this, Jeep Cherokee drives into my farm. Brand new Jeep Cherokee. It's not a cheap car, you know. Two uniformed officers from Wildlife Canada, a federal department, step out, and they served me with a $250 fine for keeping swans without a license. I mean, I couldn't believe it. It's a $10, it's a $10 permit you need. And I didn't know anything about it, and so I hadn't applied for it. I said, what are you doing? She said, you're keeping swans without a license. I said, why do I need a license? Well, you just do. I said, listen, I feed them. I spend money on them. I protect them. I put them in my barn all winter. What are you talking about? But this was like top-down control of me and my life, right? Just out of the blue. And every year I would get a manual this thick in my mailbox because I owned a farm. I got a manual this thick, I kid you not. You gotta see it. You should send for one and look at it. It's got about 600 pages, tiny print of the hundreds of thousands of grants that you can apply for if you're a citizen of Canada, especially if you're a farmer. Grants for everything, you know? Well, where's the money for those grants come from? Comes from you and your neighbor, and so on. So what you see in a country like Canada is what you have seen in the Scandinavian countries. Tax rates keep going up. There's about five countries in Scandinavian countries or European countries in which 
the personal tax rate is over 50%. I think it's like 62% in Denmark, something like that. Governments used to be frightened about the 50% level. They would say, if we go over 50%, they're going to think they're slaves to government. Part of my message here is that people don't mind being slaves in terms of whatever it is the government can do for them. What they don't want to be slaves to is their own biology and their own appetites. And that's why I talk about the triumph of the will over nature. So I what I'm get what I'm what I'm getting from that is that you think that government's going to continue to grow, the liberties are going to continue to shrink. Do you have any specific observations? It's a risky thing, but any specific uh, predictions? Do you think this gender thing will run out of steam eventually? For example, that nature will bite back, or that in Canada it's going to continue to go. It went, we went from Bill 16 to the conversion therapy ban, which you you just referenced. Do you think this thing is going to run out of steam, or do you think that the that libertarian socialism, as you put it, is going to continue to grow and, and restrict our freedoms. Well, what do you think the future is, for example, for Christian communities who can't live in, in obedience to some of these laws? Well, I think they're going to continue to cocoon and sequester themselves. They've been doing that for decades. Uh, we see that in the emptying of the pews and also the conversion of some of the churches, like the Anglican church, they're coming on site. Defending yeah. gay marriage, defending homosexuality, heavens, defending abortion. I don't know what they're doing, but they see themselves losing their market share, so to speak, and so they capitulate. Catholic Church so far hasn't capitulated so far as I can see, but they may end up doing that. I don't know. Uh, it's interesting what you ask, uh, Jonathan, because my wife was saying yesterday that um, in terms of the trend of the whole world towards universalism or what they call globalism everywhere in terms of trade and economics and travel and public policy and regulation. It's all been going towards globalism, but this, uh, co this virus scare is quickly sending things back the other way. It gives you some idea of what can happen in a real crisis. And I'm not sure this crisis mm -hmm. is that real yet. To me, the regular flu over the last few decades has been a hundred times worse than this. But this may end up being worse. We don't know. Maybe more virulent. Maybe it mutates faster. I don't know. But people seem to get sick. They get better quickly. And it's mostly affecting very old people uh, wherever it does kill. Uh, at any rate, let's hope it doesn't get any worse. But what I'm trying to say is that the panic surrounding it has renationalized everybody. Trump was saying this four years ago, make America great again. Nobody has said make Canada great again. But they are now in the sense of, uh-oh, we're going to have to close our borders to travel. We're going to have to protect ourselves. We're going to have to take back the patents to our drugs and the manufacture of our drugs, take it back from China, get our own industries going. So we have kind of a renationalization taking place now in the, in the face of this globalization crisis, which is the virus. First time we've seen it in our lifetime other than outside of, say, the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So what kind of advice would you have for, for young Canadians? Because you do paint a pretty bleak picture, none of which surprises me, per se. Um, but what would you tell young Canadians? It's always sort of interesting when I hear analyses like this, right? There's a lot of people that are just starting off, you know, just starting to have children, and they're seeing all these laws get passed. They're seeing the, the space in which they're permitted to actually exercise their beliefs shrink. And the obvious question then is, 
well, what do we do and how do we respond? So I wanted to ask you this because you've been following this for so many decades. What would you say to young Canadians who are worried about the state of Canada? What would you tell them to do? Any advice? Yeah, I, I wrote an essay about this called The Four Fs and the Four Gs some years ago. I actually presented it to a church group and they were all over it. Of uh, Freedom, family, free enterprise, and faith. Those are the four Fs. You know, and if you can build your life around those four Fs, you're probably going to do okay. You may have to sequester yourself more than you thought you would be. You may have to be more privatized in terms of your attitude and the friends you keep. And, you know, you may have to start growing your own vegetables. I don't know. But uh, the four Fs, freedom, family, free enterprise, and faith should be the focus of your, of your young life. What's, what's the alternative to that? Where is Canada gone? Well, we have government. We have tax grabs. You know, all this kind of thing I call the four Gs, and mm. um, I'll send you the essay. Uh, you might enjoy it. But um, if you have to, and I said what I do ask, how, why did this happen? How did it happen? Well, it, it came through the modern liberal or libertarian socialist progressive ideology. So um, it's true my analyses sound a bit grim. On the other hand, I only write them because I love my country or have loved it. Mm-hmm. And you can't write this kind of thing about your country unless you do, because you have to go deep and you have to get to the source of the issues in order to fight back. Otherwise, you're throwing water on the smoke, not on the fire. My books are all about the fire. If you want to understand the fire in Canada, the ground fire, get the trouble with Canada still. If you want to understand it internationally in terms of libertarian socialism, Get the great divide. And I don't say to my friends, read my books. That would be egotistical. No. I say, study them. Sit down with a pen and paper, make some notes, actually study these books. Because they're not novels or sex books or whatever else you like to read, you know. And we need to, we need to get thinking about a people. Mm-hmm. And then we need to speak up. I was also the founder of an organization called Civitas Canada 25 years ago. The membership is basically comprised of people like you people in the media uh, who have a more uh, conservative, um, I guess you call Burkean take on life, a more uh, true um, value of uh, individual liberty than, the, than where it's you know gone today, which I've been describing. And we gather once a year for a conference. This year it's in Calgary. I hope it doesn't get canceled because of the virus. But we've been going for 25 years, and our members – doing exactly what you're doing, writing books, articles, doing podcasts, TV shows, journalism. They probably influence three or four million Canadians every year with their opinions. But for goodness sake, I say to the young, speak up. My own father, God bless him, is not, no longer with us, but he said something very valuable to me as a young boy. You know what he said? He said, know what you think, say what you think, and do what you say. If you can live by, live mm. by those I like you that. You can live by those principles, he said, you'd be all right. And the last thing he said before he departed this earth was education. He said the best and cheapest education you can get is asking questions of almost everybody you meet and listen. Can you repeat that model one more time? Yeah. Know what you think, say what you think, do what you say. I like and that. Today, I really like today, that. Today, a lot of Canadians, they do know what they think. They do know what they think, but they're not saying what they think in public because they're frightened and they're not, therefore they're not doing what they think. Oh, you and I probably, you and I probably both could name off half a dozen members of parliament who believe almost precisely what we believe, but would never get caught dead saying it out loud in front of a microphone. Members of parliament, talk about your neighbors and your friends at a dinner party. 
you know, when I was a young man, you were expected to have an opinion. Some older fellow at the table would ask you something. You were expected to have an opinion. And if it was a stupid opinion, he might not use that word, but he might say, how can you say that? Let, let me hear you defend your argument. And you would look pretty bad if you couldn't defend it. You would be corrected by someone you respected who had a fuller grasp of the question than, than you did. But today, those topics don't even come up. All we're doing is small talk at the table. We're, there's 20 or 30 things we're frightened to raise. We might offend somebody. Good heavens, when I give public speeches, it's inevitable. Somebody, usually a feminist, male or female, a radical, stands up and says, Mr. Gardner, I'm outraged by what you've been saying. The room goes crazy quiet. And I look at them right in the eye. You know what I say? I say, you couldn't be more outraged than I am. Now, what's your point? <laughs> You know what? It's like watching the air come out of a balloon, and if they're smart, they guys see. You want me to say something you can actually grapple with? I said, yes, of course. I can't deal with your emotions. I'm just as upset as you are. So what? What's your point? And then we get into a debate, see, where we're on the chessboard now. You make a move. I make a move. Let's see who wins this debate because it's a win-win situation. Either I learn something and it's a win, or you learn something, and it's a win. But nobody loses. So let's go at it. And I wish our whole society had that attitude towards public discussion. Final question, where can our listeners and our viewers find your Pardon work? Me? Where can our listeners and our viewers find well, your work? Well, excuse the flagrant self-promotion, but I urge them all to go to my website. It's williamgardner.com. Excuse me, .ca. It's williamgardner.ca. All my books are on the website, a description of every book. And you've got an Amazon link under the book. You just click it, and away you go. And all I can say is, with respect to most of them, you better be sitting down when you read them. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and explain all this. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Canadian author and commentator William Gardner. If you want to check out any past shows, please go to lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast link. You'll find us there. If you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe and encourage others to do so. And if you want to see other news and commentary, again, head over to lifesightnews.com. I write several columns a week, and we do appreciate you keeping up with this essential life, culture, and family news. Thanks for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.